0: Let me invite you to take a second and pray over one of our little ones here in the room. Maybe this is an easy one for you. You're holding them, hugging them. Maybe that's not you, and so you just pick out some random kid. It's not creepy. Just pray that God would bless them and shower them with his love as they grow and develop. Then let me invite you to take a second and ask the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to you this morning. There's so much power in just inviting God to come into your life and speak to you, saying I have open ears and an open mind this morning, and so I want to hear your word, and I want to be transformed by who you are in the experience of worship this morning. Father, we love you. We love you in the good and the bad. We've had bad the past few months, and and for many of us, it's starting to turn into good, and and we have a chance to fulfill our consistent pledge, which is to follow you and to run after you no matter what life throws our way. I pray this morning as we open up the scriptures and as we have our Our young ones here in the room with us, that you would truly speak and that you would truly transform and that we would be continually created as a community to be a people who look like your son and act like your son, who are eventually and habitually conformed to his image. An image where we might find life, where we might find the life of the beloved, where we might find the Father's love and the Spirit's. guidance and power and presence. Be with us as we open up the scriptures. Be with us as we worship. Be with us as we love one another. It's in your son's beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So every fourth Sunday at uh or fifth Sunday at at Sweetwater Christian Church, we practice what's called Big Church Sunday. Every now and then we'll throw an audible and we'll have like a, a kind of last-minute Big Church Sunday. And it's one of my favorite things about our church um, because during the week, one of the things I do is I serve as the Congregational Vitality Ministry Chair. It's a mouthful for our area denomination. And if you are unaware, our area and the denomination is largely in decline, okay? Okay. Um, Churches aren't doing very well, and they're especially having trouble after the hurricane. Um, And one of the ways you can gauge church health is by how many little ones are running around and making noise. And I was struck by last Sunday, I got up here and said, Okay, goodbye, kiddos. Have a good Sunday school. And like 20 kids stood up and and walked out into the back. Um, And, you know, the church has changed a lot over the years. I've been here nine years For a while there at the beginning, we had a really weird combination where we had like half adults and half high schoolers. In fact, they were sitting on opposite sides. There was a weird segregation thing going on. And then as, as our high schools have graduated and that kind of season in our church has faded out, we've had church members start to populate our church. In different ways, and we've had had kids growing up, um, and so um, it's a beautiful thing, right? This is real life. Kids make noise, and kids make sounds, and kids are interested, and kids cry. And and these are not things that are distractions, these are things that are joys, at least for me and for our leadership team here at the church. Um, And one of our, our biggest missions is to prepare people to be disciple makers of Christ. Um, And as someone who does a lot of youth ministry itinerantly, I can tell you I see high schoolers and college students who have never been in a big church sanctuary environment who then go off to college or go off into the real world and can't plug in at a regular church because they've never been there, right? They don't know what it's like. They don't know what they're supposed to do in those situations. And so this is one of the many ways that we want to integrate them into the life of our community. That being said, we've got a ton of children, more children than we've ever had before. And so we're going to see some um, revamping of our children's ministry coming up very soon in 2018. Um, We're switching from three um, fully stocked children's classes to four fully stocked children's classes in order to um, differentiate between, right now we've got first graders through fifth graders. I've never spent time around that age group, but people who have say, There's a big difference between trying to teach a first grader and a fifth grader. And so we're doing that. Um, I'm just giving you kind of a hint, preview of that, because we are going to be needing a couple volunteers for that. And we will have quite a plan to unveil pretty soon. We want to raise some funds so that we can go into 2018, um, be able to hit that off strongly. And so just a little teaser for you, okay? Um, This is an area of our church where we need to invest, where we need to invest in prayer, where we need to invest in money, and where we need to invest in volunteers. And so be considering right now your experience in the children's ministry. Be experiencing or considering right now ways that you might um, be able to help us going forward as we minister to this vital group of our congregation. If you have your Bible, let me ask you to turn to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven is where we'll be, and, and we'll just focus on one verse here. Um, this morning. We'll say it's for the kids, even though we all know I can go an hour or two just on one verse anyways. I don't have to? Well, I'm going to. Texans play at 3, right, Chris? Okay, I see 11.30, so we've got some time. Um We'll be looking at a text this morning that's called the Golden Rule. Now, a question just for our kiddos in the room. Does anybody know here what the Golden Rule is? Mr. Caleb, can you help me out with the Golden Rule? Perfect. What a great job. Treat others as you yourself would like to be treated. Now I've taught for a while. I've taught in freshmen, um, in high school situations. I've taught the university situations, and let me be honest: I'm typically known as the popular teacher. Okay, I don't say that to brag because a lot of times being the popular teacher means you're the runover teacher. Okay, the teacher that doesn't really take class seriously. Um, but one of the reasons I think that I relate to students well is because not only am I like two years ahead of them, but I explicitly try to arrange my classroom in such a way that I'm going to teach as if I'm very cognizant of what it's like to be you. I know that you have other classes than just my class. I know that this is a core class, and you have other majors that are more interesting to you. I know that you have other things going on in your life. Family things, health things, sports, athletics, all kinds of things. And so I want to be cognizant of that. I want to let you know, look, I'll help you out. If you put forth a modicum of effort, I'll do my best to help you out. I'm not here to fail you. I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm not here to ruin your GPA, things of that nature. Um, I get this from, I think, the golden rule that Caleb so perfectly articulated, right? Treat others as you'd want to treat yourself. When I was in high school, um, I, I missed so many classes my junior year because of some medical issues that I should not have passed on to senior year. I should have had to retake junior year, and I know this for a fact. Although the, this person does not know that I know this, um, the principal at the time, who was known as kind of being a hard, kind of a lot, hard guy, no sympathy, right, vetoed the board's decision to make me take junior year again. And said, no, I'm sticking up for this kid. Just just push him through to senior year. Maybe he just wanted me out of the school. I'm not sure. But I've always appreciated that. It's the same principal who hired me years later and who covered up for a few mistakes I made there while I was a young teacher teaching in, in high school. Treat others the way you want to be treated. When I was in grad school, um, I don't think I ever turned in a paper on time. It was a week, two weeks later, but my grad teachers knew that that week or two weeks meant they were going to get one of the better papers of the class. If I could just kind of go along with my own time schedule, they knew I was teaching full-time and pastoring a church, those kind of things. And so when I get up as a college professor and kids have reasons to turn things in late, I don't, you know, take points off like some mean master, you know, counting every second that they don't. I'm like, just get the paper to me, okay? I haven't graded them anyways. Just, just get it into me, and we'll, we'll all be good. Treat others the way that you want to be treated yourself. We get here in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in verse 12 of chapter 7, the end of the main teaching portion of the Sermon on the Mount. There's lots of clues to clue us into this. The first is that if you look, the next three, four passages are all warnings. Jesus is wrapping up his teachings with warnings about what you do or don't do or might or might not experience if you put into practice what I've taught. There's also a connection, we'll read it. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If you flip back to chapter 5, verse 17, after the prologue of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. And he goes through example after example about how he's not come to get rid of the law and prophets. He's come to take them to their full, their full extreme. He's come to bring them to their full intent, to the goal that they were always after. And now again, we get this kind of bracketed um, conclusion to Jesus' teachings on the law and the prophets on fulfilling the law and the prophets with this maxim, this moral this moral aphorism, this phrase that so many of us know and have heard. Do unto others what you wish others would do to you. Now, I want to say that our Greek and the ESV is, is, is not doing us a whole lot of favors. I'm no Greek expert. I know Greek well enough to read most of the New Testament in it, and so I'm not going to to make a big deal out of this. There's a lot in the Greek, I think, that could help us understand exactly what's going on in this text. I'll point out a couple of things. But I want to make a few observations. The first observation is, look at this first word here. It's not the first word in Greek, but the first word in English translations, so. Okay? So is typically a connector to everything that follows. It seems like so is... First of all, connecting to what the passage we looked at last week said, which was, Ask and you'll find, you'll be given, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. Why? Because you have a generous father. You have a good, good father who has so many resources and wants what's good for you more than you could ever imagine. And if you had a father or friend like that, why would you not shamelessly ask them for everything that you desire? And we talked about how that kind of a relationship where you ask God for what you need and then expect him to provide would shape you over time into the type of disciple that Jesus wants out of his community. It's connected, I think, this maxim, this, this, this moral phrase, do unto others what others would do unto you. It's connected to the generosity of the Father. If the Father is so kind and so generous and so free in his gift giving, then you and I should be similarly so free in our gift giving. This is the theme we find out throughout the scriptures, right? If God is like this, we should be like this. Um, You find this in Leviticus, um, the book of Leviticus, where a lot of these love passages that Jesus talks about come from. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not far after that in Leviticus... You find uh, the text saying, love the foreigner as yourself. Why? Because you once knew what it was like to be a foreigner when you were slaves in Egypt. The whole of Leviticus is based on this one command, be holy because I'm holy. You should act this way because this is who I am. There's a very basic spiritual principle at work, which is that you become like what you worship. So if you worship a millionaire, you're going to become like that millionaire. You're not probably going to make millions of dollars, but everything will be a calculator for you, right? Every, every transaction, every relationship is going to be viewed in terms of money, which you can get out of it. If you worship athletes, right, everything is going to be in terms of your athletic ability, uh, in terms of you, know, you imitating their fashion and their jargon and their lifestyle and things of that nature, by virtue of worship, meaning I think this is cool in vernacular, right? I think this is worthy of a life well spent. You slowly but surely start to become that. And if we worship a generous, good, gift giving Father, we slowly but surely will become people like that. The second observation I want to make is we're not given this phrase just by itself. Whatever you wish the others would do to you, do also to them. He also says, for or because this is the law and the prophets. Not only does this connect us to the beginning of the sermon, but this places us in a particular time and a particular history. So here's the truth. People have said things like this. What you want other people to treat you like, you should treat them like. Or if you don't want what you want people not to do to you, don't do to other people, this is not original to Jesus. People well before the time of Jesus said things like this. Okay? People well after the time of Jesus said things like this. I can print you off a list of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different places throughout world history and all kinds of religions and all kinds of cultures at all times where you find some kind of moral statement like this. It's not unique to Christianity. But you know what is unique to Christianity? The idea that we might do this because of who our Father is, that we worship, and be, because it is the fulfillment it is what hangs the law and the prophets upon. If you'll remember, the law um, is really the the fulfillment of God's covenant in history. The intent of the law is to produce just and worshipful people who follow Yahweh, who follow the Father faithfully. Cornel West once said, Justice is what love looks like in public. I mean, Justice is what love looks like when it happens amongst a group of people in public and organized forms. And the prophets are often people who just are sent to call back those who have lost their, their eyes from the law, from the call to justice and equality and fairness. The prophets come and they say, look, you need to come back to covenant faithfulness. And so when Jesus offers this this moral statement, do unto others as you wish they would do unto you, it's important that we don't rip this from its context. Um, This is not just another saying out of a seemingly universal idea that spans cultures and regions and timelines. This is Jesus placing this in a particular history, with a particular goal to that history, which is Yahweh, the creator and father of Israel, redeeming and recreating the world through a people filled with the Spirit through the work and person of Jesus. We can definitely say that this is not to be used as a self-help maxim. Okay. So interestingly enough, when I Googled the, the golden rule, just by itself, and even with a couple of religious phrases, what I got for pages and pages um, was the golden rule being applied to other things. So you have the golden rule applied to business. In business, treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. Now that may or may not be a good business principle. I'm not going to argue with that, right? That's not what Jesus is saying, though. The golden rule in terms of marriage. Treat other people in your marriage the way that you would like them to treat you. That may or may not work and and improve you in your life, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is talking about God fulfilling his promises for all creation through a community of people committed to his lifestyle, his vision of life. And parenting. Treat your kids the way that you would like to be treated. I think when you think in all of these kind of situations, we can think of some exceptions, okay? We can think of some ways we need to think a little bit deeper about this. Um, I don't think it's to be used as self-help. In fact, actually, I found out the Kentucky uh, driver motor vehicle, um, at the end of their uh, license registration process, um, one of the last things they tell people is, drive as you would like other drivers to drive, I take Jesus' his, his moral statement here and apply that to, to driving, which is not a bad idea. Probably I shouldn't drive, I guess. Um, we might notice that the golden rule is not a promise. Just like Jesus' promise of don't react to evildoers in the same way, it's not a promise that it's going to work. The golden rule is not a promise that this is going to make your life better. You might treat someone the way that you wish you would be treated, and they might still treat you like fill in the blank. This is not a quid pro quo. This is not a self-help formula for you to succeed in life necessarily. It's very easily a call to sacrifice. When someone treats you inappropriately, and you decide to not retaliate. Instead, treat them how you would want to be treated. Now, unfortunately, you can do some mental gymnastics, right? Like, well, if I was this big of a jerk, I wish someone would come up and slap me. And so that's what I'll do, okay, in this situation. But I don't think it's it's quite what Jesus is getting at here. What we have in this phrase, whatever you wish others would do, to also to them— is we have a, a clue, a kind of shining example of what I call virtue ethics, which I think is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about a vision of life that Jesus is calling us to, whereby habitual practice, by, by practicing the symptoms of an inner character, we are slowly but surely changed into that character. It's like the pilot who, who landed on that, that kind of ice. I forget the exact... Um, details of the situation. He landed on this ice. It was this real miraculous kind of flight. Um, And people talk about how, you know, it was a miracle. And it probably was sort of a miracle. Um, At the same time, though, that pilot, right, put in hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of work to where by the time he found himself in this emergency, all of his training clicked in kind of secondhand, it was his new nature. Why? Because he had habitually practiced it. This is why forgiveness is so hard for us. But if we would practice forgiveness in the small ways, consistently, in 10 years, we might be such a forgiving person that it would surprise us. Why? Because it's become second nature to us. Habits turn into character. Character. And we get a new character, one more Christ-like. There are ways to do ethics other than virtue ethics. There's utilitarian ethics, which is do what works. It's kind of pragmatism. So means justifies the end, right? As long as this gets the correct end, it really doesn't matter necessarily how good or wrong it is, what I have to do to get there. More popular is what we call deontological ethics, um, which is rule-based ethics, right? There's a rule, and whatever it is, you follow the rule. If you're a type A person, this is what you like, naturally, right? I'm in this situation. What's the rule for this situation? Now, this this lacks because, one, not all rules apply to all situations. Your rule might have some different—your situation might have some different circumstances, and then, two— it's just literally impossible to create a rule book that could, that could address every possible circumstance you might ever encounter. Virtue ethics is different in that what it tries to do is create in you a type of person that will be able to respond correctly no matter how weird the circumstance you encounter. And this is a great example of this if we can memorize, get into our hearts, do unto others what we wish they would do to us, we don't need a rule for every circumstance. You don't need to call Pastor Mike every time something weird comes up. I mean, in a sense, this almost relativizes the need for professional pastors or therapists or counselors. This is something you can pull from your back pocket. Okay, in this situation, what would I want to be treated like? And I have a good bet that if I go with that, you know, I'll be going in the right direction. Now, this this idea to love others, particularly in such a um, kind of Christ like way, is not new in the Gospels with Jesus or in the New Testament. Jesus um, later on in Matthew twenty two, this kind of a, a, a highlight, um, a foreshadowing will give us what we call the double law. Um, he's asked what the greatest commandment is, which is kind of you know, a trick question like, when did you stop beating your wife? Right? Like, There's no real good answer out of all these great laws. And Jesus, as the genius that he kind of is, provides the greatest two commandments. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. We already see here again a connection, right, between our love for God and our experience of God and the energy and source that we have to love other people. You remember that people try to get around this by going, well, who exactly is our neighbor? And Jesus gives this explosive parable where your neighbor is the worst imaginable enemy that you can think of. Your neighbor is the one that you create out of your acts of generosity. Your neighbor is the one that you don't cross the road for. It's stupid, but I like it. There was a football commercial going around where they were trying to determine—it was like a Chick-fil-A ad. um, They were trying to determine how how generous college football fans are to other teams— And I don't know if you've seen this or not, but, like, it was Alabama versus FSU, I think. And and that Alabama car got pulled over and was smoking, everything like that. And then you see a whole bunch of FSU fans stop and help. And he's like, I'm surprised you stopped. You know, you're you're on the opposite team. They're like, well, we're humans before we're football fans and those sort of things. And they switch it to FSU, and a whole bunch of Alabama fans stopped and things like that. It makes you feel kind of good about humanity, right? Now I'm an Aggie. If a Texas fan is broken down, we're just going to drive by and and thank God for his blessings. (laughs) Don't judge me too hard. I couldn't fix a car anyways, so I'm probably doing them a favor. Um, You see this in Paul throughout the New Testament. Romans 13.9, he's kind of repeating his Jesus tradition passed down to him. He says in Romans 13, 9, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're loving your neighbor as yourself, are you going to sleep with their spouse? Probably not. Are you going to steal their things? Probably not. Are you going to murder them? Probably not. Romans thirteen ten. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Remember the law is created to produce a just people in the world who reflects God's character out into all of creation. It's the fulfillment of the law. Galatians five fourteen. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself. And so we get this very popular, very memorable phrase, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We might notice that in previous versions of moral statements like this, they're often painted in the negative. So don't harm others in a way that you would not want to be harmed. And we might notice the difference between those two. The golden rule in a negative sense, we call it the silver rule. It requires less out of you, right? So don't harm other people in a way that I don't want to be harmed. Really just means I don't have to do certain things. If I don't like getting my tires slashed, I don't slash other people's tires. Fulfilled. But when I'm told to love others the way that I would like to be loved... It's a much more active command. It's a command that's kind of always at work here. It's a command that doesn't give me a free second to kind of rest. If I'd like others to encourage me, if I'd like others to respect me, if I'd like others to help me in times of need, this is kind of always on the job. It's much more challenging. I'll wrap it up with with two ways we might apply this this statement by Jesus. It's so well known. I'll be honest; I listened to about twelve sermons this week about the Golden Rule. None of them I thought were very good. You know, it's just such a well known command um, that it's so hard to read it for the first time, and so hard to really understand the like power behind what it's trying to get at. Um, we've kind of abandoned it to Sunday school. Um, because it makes sense there. It tries to make our children behave a little bit better. Um, but, I mean, imagine what the world would be like if you had actual human beings, Christians, who operated on this principle more often than they didn't. It would be a pretty radical change. The church would have a much better reputation. The world would want a whole lot more churches if we were characterized as, as these kind of people. So two applications. The first one is, I think, to fulfill this command, it's going to take two things from us. The first thing is going to take knowledge. We're going to have to really understand what we truly desire, how we truly desire to be treated in a variety of circumstances. And often I don't think we really truly understand that. One of the the best pieces of advice I got, and it's kind of selfish, I think it works here, though, is... People treat you the way you let them treat you. So if if you if you are in a work situation or if you're in a, a community situation and you all of a sudden are the butt of the joke, right? Or people are constantly lying to you or leaving you out or things of that nature. What I've learned is usually you signal that that's okay, and by not saying or standing up for yourself, you're consistently signaling that that's okay. And I found without being rude, if you just assert yourself and, and say, look, I don't appreciate when you say things like that about me. This is how it makes me feel. People generally change pretty quickly. Unless they're evil. And then we get back to the L.A. Dodgers. Um, how do you truly desire to be treated in all kinds of circumstances? I know a couple things. I want to be respected. I want to be loved I want to be forgiven. Most circumstances in which people treat me, I've done something wrong. Or something not perfectly. I like to be treated like someone who has been forgiven, who who who's someone who is approached with reconciliation in mind, not shame and guilt in mind. I like to be appreciated. I like to be approached patiently and dealt with patiently it often takes me a long time to sort through things honestly graciously sympathetically and it also is going to take from us imagination empathy it's about human dignity here treat others the way that you yourself would like to be treated it makes me imagine okay if i'm if i'm going to treat Burgundy, the way that I'd like to be treated, it's going to make me imagine what it's like to be Burgundy. What situation she's in. What would be helpful or not helpful to her if I was in that same situation? To get a little bit awkward, as Christians, if we're going to have this emphatic, emphatic em- imagination, this this empathy, We're going to have to ask yourself things like this. How would it feel to be gay? How would it feel like to be a gay youth who's grown up in a church that's abandoned him because he's struggling with a a, a sexual orientation? This has nothing to do with what you agree or disagree with or your Bible verses or anything else, right? Simply, how does that feel? And if that were me, how would I want someone to approach me about that? We've we've had this situation in our church before. Luckily it was a, a student of mine who, who was basically a parent to. And the few people who wanted to complain, I said, you can complain, but I'm not listening. This is my this is a kid to me. I mean for all it's worth this is this is my actual son. And so so the default is to treat with love and gentleness and respect. We can argue about theology later. What's it like to be an immigrant? What's it like to flee from a war-torn country and come to America or somewhere else? What's it like to be an atheist? What's it like to be a sinner? Not in the sense that we're all sinners who've fallen short in the Lord God. What's it like to be someone who's like real full-fledged into all of that? How would we treat them in a way that we ourselves would appreciate being treated? Or when it comes to maybe some more more germane political issues. You've got on and off in the news things like the Confederate statues going up and down, and and you know the NFL all of a sudden is something you can't watch without having to take some kind of political side. Um, here's here's the one thing I've found. So uh, we've said this with with black people, actually, or gay people. I've sold this from somebody else, Gustavo Guerrero. Um, He said, you say you love gay people, what are their names? The point being like, look, it's easy to blanket statement that I love a group of people who I also kind of disenfranchise at the same time without knowing those people, right? Without knowing a name and a story and the tears that come behind that. What's it like to be a black person who goes to a school named after a Confederate war hero. Look, I'm not making a statement about what the school should be named or the Confederate flag should be named. I'm just saying this is kind of basic basic Jesus empathy, right? Before I can and should react to that person, I should do some hard work. Maybe even ask them. How does that make you feel? What are the consequences in your own life because of this? Too real? Okay, we'll move on. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just imagine the difference this would make in, in every area of life. Take so many ethical decisions out of our need to have an actual rule for it. And instead, he gives us a vision for how we might cultivate a moral, Christ-like life in so many different circumstances. That's the first thing we need to apply it. We need knowledge and imagination. The second thing we need to apply it is we need to notice that Jesus is referring to all situations. So for whatever reason, your ESV here completely ignores two words that are in the Greek. Um, Fronted in the Greek are the words all and wherever, whenever. And so, most translations that I think do this a little bit better will start the sentence with, in everything, so in everything, do unto others as you would like done unto yourself. This is not something we get to pick and choose about where we are. It's actually emphatic in the Greek. Everywhere, at all times, this is how disciples behave treat other people the way that you'd want to be treated. So, in the workplace, With that person, how would you like to be treated if you were them? In your family, how would you like to be treated if you were them? In your church, how would you like to be treated if you were them? And I can tell you, just like from a church perspective, like I love to be treated with the benefit of the doubt. Right. Sometimes we make decisions at the church or we consider decisions of the church. And every now and then someone will come with, with a question and the accusation kind of behind the question is like we haven't thought through possibilities. And it's like we give me the benefit of the doubt that I'm old enough and adult enough and I'm surrounded by adults that we've thought through those questions. It doesn't mean we're right or wrong, right? It just means those basic, obvious questions, yeah, we've we've quoted the numbers on them. We've got a booklet going through all of those for you. We can show you those type of things. As a congregation member, how would you like to be treated when it comes to changes we make here at the church? In the hallway, how would you like to be treated? And the emphasis is on you, not to wait for people to treat you like that, but for you to treat people like that. And then, just because I can't help myself politically, if Jesus is Lord of all things, Jesus is Lord of America. He's Lord of Germany. He's Lord of Canada. Can't make fun of that anymore. You know, I've even heard Australia. Perhaps he has some domain over. He, he's He's Lord of of lords. And you know, in in grad school, one of the things that that interested me and that I got into was political theology. And in 2012, Obama was running for a second term, I believe. I hope I don't sound like an idiot. Um, and I was I was doing a kind of a, an informal research project about ways that our democracy co-ops Christianity to pretend like Christianity is all about America. And we do this in all kinds of ways. I have this... It's not a drinking game because I don't drink, but it's a game um, that says... Right? How fast does it take in a political speech or a political debate for Bible quotes to be taken out of context and to be applied to America when in context they're applied to individual Christians or to the church? So when people say America is the hope of the world, that's what we call blasphemy in theology. America will come and America might go. It's not the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. America is not the salt and light of the world. The church is the salt and light of the world. And the church happens to be multinational. There's no monopoly on it in America. So I was doing this kind of thing. And then I was, I was watching this Republican debate, not to hate on Republicans. I watched this clip. I stopped the game And it's been stuck with me forever. And I was always like, I'm going to use this in a sermon or classroom at some point. And I finally figured out the perfect time to use it. So this is a clip of a Republican debate um, where a Republican candidate um, quotes Jesus on the golden rule. And as most of you know, statistically, Republicans are far more likely to go to church, are far more likely to consider themselves, you know, fairly religious Christians. Um, And I want you to just, just watch the reaction to this very public, very important Republican debate when Jesus himself is quoted. I can only hope the people cheering at the end were not the same booing at the beginning. Look, I'm not. I'm not endorsing Ron Paul. I'm not even endorsing his policies. Okay, about foreign, you know, agenda, those kind of things. I just want you to sink in for a second. Jesus is quoted directly to a large crowd of people who claim to be Christians, and is booed to the point that you can barely hear the speaker. And interesting enough, if you actually like pause it at the height of the booze, his face looks so amazing. He's like, are they really doing this? This is like just Jesus talking. This is not like one of my ideas. But there's no aspects of life that gets untouched by this. Whether with your family, with your neighbors, in your workplace, in politics. In fact, it's actually the radicalness of the golden rule best found in Jesus' command to love your enemies that perhaps stretches us to see whether we really understand the golden rule or not. Do we really want to treat other people the way that we would want to be treated? And in one sense, this is Jesus allowing what we might call humanism to be embraced into his his Christian vision for the kingdom of God. Jesus says we are to extend our self-care to each other. And for the most part, we're pretty good at self-care. Some of us need work, and, that, and that's a different issue. But for the most part, we're pretty good at, at self-care. And Jesus is saying, extend that to the people around you. If you listen to yourself in all of life, perhaps you'll be led out of yourself into a life of living others. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for all of the grace that you have given us. We thank you for your teachings. We thank you for those that seem obvious and sometimes so obvious that we can miss out on the extreme uh, ability to change our world and change our lives that come with them. I pray that you would create in us a, a knowledge and empathy of those around us so that we might be able to live out your vision for what it means to be a follower of you, that we might love other people day in and day out the way that we ourselves would like to be loved. We do all of this because we are first loved. Our source for our love, the energy for our love, the foundation for our love comes from you as our Father, from your gift of your Son, and from the strength we receive through the Holy Spirit. It's in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit that we pray all things, saying, Amen.